When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the inaugural episode of the It Never Rains on this podcast. It is March the 1st, 2022. Uh, I am Hitler Day. I am the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Uh, joining me this week is a Slurms Matt Court, one of our great writers for ATQ. How you doing? I'm well. Yourself? Uh, not bad. Can't complain. Um, so the most uh, recent article that uh, you wrote for the site was a preview of the softball Mary Nutter uh, classic, uh, which was sort of hit or miss, uh, no pun intended for the Ducks. Uh, had had it go? <laughs> well, it went okay. Uh, the Ducks struggled with the games that the, we sort of posited they would struggle with, which is the first two against number 18 Northwestern and number 16 Missouri. Uh, they lost both of those games. Nice, close, tight game against Northwestern where the Ducks only lost uh, one to nothing. And then they played Missouri and lost six to two in that game. So they, they struggled a little bit with obviously with offense, only two runs in those two games where they've been averaging closer to 10 runs a game previously in the season. But of course, early in the season, you're you're facing a lot of teams that are sort of just trying to figure out who they are and how they're going to gel. So running up the score on them is a little bit easier than it can be against teams that have figured that stuff out uh, and have high quality pitching and high quality hitting. Uh, the Ducks then went on to sweep the last three games that they played in the tournament against Seattle, Cal State Fullerton, and Long Beach State. Uh, they won those games by a combined 17-3. to The only close one was Cal State Fullerton, which was a 4-3 duck victory. So I suspect that Fullerton's the team... not a half-bad team, though. No, no, no. No. That, yeah, that's obviously... actually sort of an impressive win. Yeah. No, it's... Uh, they Coming into the tournament, I would say they were they were the third uh, most difficult and, and, you know, definitely rising close to the level of some of the first two games as far as their ability... Uh, to play softball, and, and they showed that, I think, in the game against Oregon. Um, and then, the, you know, the Ducks closed it out. I think they probably uh, got a lot of value out of this tournament. They probably learned a lot about their team and what they have to do to continue to win uh, as, as they move through the rest of their schedule, uh, especially when they get into the Pac-12, which, as we know, is historically extremely difficult conference to win in. Uh, now, so next weekend, uh, Oregon has uh, a trip to the East Coast. They're going to start off with a single game against North Carolina Greensboro, and then they're in the Carolina Classic. Uh, they open with Penn State on Friday, and we'll see uh, how that goes. Again, it, uh, everything's a road game early on in the softball season. You have to go where it's not raining all the time, as it has been here with our lovely atmospheric river over the last I don't year, know so. what you're talking about. Never yeah, I'm, sure you do. I'm sure you don't. Yeah, it's rain, it rains everywhere but on the podcast and in Autzen Stadium, obviously. Correct. So, But it, it, I'm looking forward to the season. I think, uh, you know, Oregon is – hopefully what's going to happen is they'll use these games to gel as a team and figure out – what the best way is for them to win games going forward and then be able to execute that going forward. Uh, it's, it will be interesting to watch them in this North Carolina swing. Um, uh, there's a couple of games on ESPN plus, and then the rest of the games, we haven't found out if they're going to be televised yet. It's sort of hard to believe that you'd have, you know, two, two power five teams, you know, Oregon and Penn state playing each other with, uh, you know, without a single camera. So we're going to have to keep our eyes on, on that to, uh, to see, you know, what kind of television options that are. Um, what do you think about, uh, strengths and weaknesses of the softball team? I think they're a, a very good hitting team, despite the, the difficulty that they had uh, early on in the Mary Nutter classic of hitting the ball. They've, they've really been able to rack up a lot of hits in most of their games that, and string them together, which, you know, if, if you're not a big power team, and I don't see Oregon at this point anyway, as being a big 
power softball team, you have to be able to string some hits together in order to score any runs. And the Ducks have been doing that very successfully. Uh, even in the last couple of games in the Mary Nutter, they managed to, to play enough runs to win the games. So that's the, to me, that's the strength in the pitching. I mean, they, I think they've got a very strong uh, and experienced pitching staff, and I suspect that they're going to continue to do very well. And it was, you know, the, the, the first game Jordan Dale pitched uh, against Northwestern, and uh, you know, did very well. She only lost game one nothing, but she went the distance for the Ducks in that yeah, game. Yeah, that that game was on the bats. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, hopefully, now that they've seen some maybe a little higher level pitching than they saw earlier in the season. Uh, it t- takes a little while, I think, to get if, – if you face somebody with real speed or real movement on the ball, it takes a little while to get used to that in live game action. It's one thing to be in the gym and be hitting off the pitching machine or even be hitting off live pitching uh, in the gym. But once you get uh, in a game and have live pitching, it's quite a different look, and it takes a while to get used to the speed and the movement that those balls have. Most runs they've given up uh, this year so far was that second game of the Nutter Classic uh, to Mizzou. Uh, what do you think went on there? I think that, um, you know, Mizzou is a pretty good hitting team. And I think they probably um, struggled a little bit with trying to um, keep girls off the base path uh, at important times. And they gave up a couple of key hits in the game. So what happened was that, um, you know, Missouri kind of jumped on them, frankly, in this game. Um, they they scored two in the first, they scored two in the fourth. So early on, it was four nothing in this game. And Oregon was in it in a little bit of a hole to what is a pretty good hitting uh, Mizzou team, frankly. Uh, they gave up, uh, Oregon gave up a home run, and they just never got rolling Uh, on the base paths. In fact, if you look at it, they only had four hits total in the entire game. And three of the four came from their first three players in the the batting lineup, Hannah Delgado, Paige Sineke, and Ali Bunker. So that's where they ran into some troubles, I think, uh, in trying to... And Oregon also had an error in the game. And so not a lot of things went right. You had a ton of players who... Uh, went over at the plate, uh, and you know you're not going to win many games with four hits, especially if those four hits are not home runs. And that's the, the place where Oregon has not done very much is multi-base hits. They don't get a lot of doubles. They have they had no triples coming into this tournament, uh, and only a half a dozen home runs. So the long ball is not has not been Oregon's strong suit so far this season. Although they did get a homer in this game, but yeah, yeah it, 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 I mean, it really just reads like, you know, Mizzou is consistently getting on base and then, you know, and then getting folks home and, and Oregon was just, you know, it, this one's sort of like, yeah, there's going to be, I, I don't know. In my opinion, it looked to me like there's going to be games in which the opponents, you know, bats get hot. And if that's going to happen, then you need to get hot at the plate too. And, you know, that's what wasn't happening. Like I, I'm much more concerned about this team offensively than defensively. I guess mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. Do you, mm-hmm. do you, do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, they seem solid defensively so far. Uh, they have not given up aside from, as you know, aside from this game, they haven't given up very many runs in any game. So their pitching and defense seems solid. And against the pitching they faced previously, they were able to string together hits and score runs that way. That didn't happen, and you know, obviously in their first two games in this in the Mary Nutter tournament, didn't score any runs in the first game and only scored two in the second. While um, you know, Mizzou was running around the bases for a while. So they do need to. There's a, at some point you have to score runs to win games, and hopefully they will figure out how to hit better pitching because they're going to see it, especially as they get into the Pac-12 conference season, they're definitely going to see high-level pitching in virtually every game and are going to have to figure out a way to continue to get players on base in order to score runs. If they're Again, if they're not going to hit a lot of uh, two or three or four base uh, hits, they have to do it with smaller ball, and hopefully they'll be able to figure out how to do that. 
Well, there is a promising sign from the, you know, from the Baylor series, you know, they played a three game series in, in Waco prior to this in which, you know, they take their first loss of the season and that in the first game against Baylor, they get blanked, you know, they, they lose right. out to three, the next game, they get eight runs and a win the next game against Baylor, they get 10 runs and a right. win, you know, like they, you know, give them a little time and they can figure it out. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the nice things about Pac-12 plays, you see the same opponents, you know, uh, and, and I think that, you know, coach Lombardi's done a pretty good job at, you know, sort of figuring out opponents as time goes on. I, I think she's a hell of a coach. Um, all right, let's stick with the diamond. Talk a little bit about baseball, uh, uh, Oregon, uh, the, the men at the plate, uh, uh, have not had a problem uh, scoring runs. Uh, <laughs> sort of, I mean, just absurd, really. Uh, uh, the the you know the, their their first game of the, you know they played a four game series. The first game of the season was against San Diego. They score one run, they lose one to eleven. By the end of that series, they had they won the game twenty one to eleven, which is like I didn't know that you could score twenty one <laughs> runs in a baseball game. Then they have a four game series they just concluded against St. John's, where they start out with twenty three runs. I was just like, okay, I you know I guess this team can hit. Um, yeah, you know, something they, happened in that. I don't know what happened right before that fourth game against San Diego, but something happened. Yeah, I, the the disappointing one. I, uh, Badwater on the site uh, wrote this game up on on Monday, uh, the the final game against St. John's. You know, it was disappointing in that it was only six to zero. It was, you yeah. know, the, <laughs> it was like, you know, it was crazy. You know, they wound up sweeping that series of something like you know. What, like 52 to nine or some crazy thing, yeah. you know, score like that. Yeah. yeah they scored 21, 23 and 16 in the first three games. That's yeah. just huge offensive production. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, we will look forward to those, you know, the bats going forward. Um, they were finally going to be on, on uh, streaming. They're going to be on uh, Oregon live stream for this series against UC Santa Barbara. Um, and these games are going to be played in, in, in Eugene. Actually, they have the, the next five games, those four against UC Santa Barbara and uh, the uh, a singleton against Portland, uh, the pilots uh, all in Eugene. Uh, so you can go to the game PK park uh, and they're going to be on Oregon live stream so that you can, um, you know, stream them on your, on your computer um so uh looking forward to some more offensive firepower all right let's take a break okay slurms let's talk about basketball uh, yes, uh the um the oregon women uh finished up their regular season um it not a half bad season not a fantastic season uh would you agree yeah, I think a little bit inconsistent. They There were some games where they would come in and just play fantastic and seem to know what they wanted to do on offense and be able to execute it. Their defense, I think, has by and large been pretty good. They're very good. I've watched a couple of these yeah, games totally. where, where their uh, rotation onto shooters has been fantastic, really fast, and know what the rotation should be and when it should happen. The problems they've had a little bit more with offensive identity, and that's one of the things that's come up in a couple of the articles uh, on the site, is they're not always, it's not always clear how they're expecting to score their points. You've got this team that has two fantastic uh, big players, Nayara Savali and, and uh, Sedona Prince, of course, and they rarely are on the floor at the same time, but Nevertheless, they give the Ducks a presence inside with a big that they should be able to take advantage of much of the time. But they don't always seem to use them. There was a game that I covered in, I think it was in Arizona, where uh, against Arizona State perhaps, where uh, Sabali had a couple of fouls, in the, I believe, in the first quarter and had to sit down. But when she came back... In the second quarter, they started running the offense against uh, uh, through her every time down the court. And they had tremendous success in scoring the basketball during that series because she was either able to get to the basket or if she got double teamed, which frequently happened, she was able to kick it out to an open shooter for a two or a three. Finding that kind of offensive rhythm has been hit and miss for, for the team over the last month or so. And uh, unfortunately, and hopefully, they'll be able to get it back here now coming into the Pac-12 tournament. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that they enjoy a pretty clear advantage over most of the field, you know, in the in the Pac-12 tournament, you know, simply because, I don't know, if you just roll through their schedule, like, their losses are to ranked teams, their, yes. you know, their wins are, you know, they have very few, I think maybe two losses against teams, you know, that aren't ranked, and, you know, mm-hmm. they have maybe two wins against teams that are ranked, you know, like, they, they basically on any given game they're they're going to beat the teams that they're supposed to beat and you know they're going to struggle against the teams that they are supposed to struggle against mm-hmm. and, and you know it's it's not a, a lot of surprises in that sense the the tournament sets up really nice badwater uh wrote a, a fantastic tournament preview the bracket just sets up you know fantastically for for the ducks because all the all the tough teams are on the opposite side of the bracket right. um in stanford you know who's just like an this is maybe tara vanderveer's best team uh, i don't know she's been coaching for a long time that might be hyperbole um but you know they're undefeated uh right. in in conference it's hard to see that stopping in the tournament um they uh oregon um uh, gets the first round by they finish with the number two seed uh by virtue of um well they beat utah and earlier in the year they just absolutely hammered wazoo who uh who finished with the three seed they, mm-hmm. um they, they wound up i believe with the same uh conference record but oregon obviously controlled the head-to-head uh strongly controlled that head-to-head i mean that was just a, a terrible shooting performance by the coos in that game um so uh oregon uh doesn't play on wednesday they get the bye uh ucla and usc uh play for the right to to play against oregon uh the ducks handled both the la schools pretty handily during the regular season and doesn't really seem like kelly graves the kind of guy who you know lets his team stumble with that amount of you know that much they're you know they're gonna have like five days off right you don't see any problems taking out the one of the la schools do you I, I really doubt it. Um, you know, I think it'll help the team a lot to have this time off. If there's any, you know, little niggling injuries or anything they have, they'll be able to work those off with the training staff or, or uh, in some other method. So everybody should be basically at full strength coming into the game. And they, they as you note, they've had really no problem with either of the L.A. schools during the regular season. And I would expect them to come out ready to put the hammer down. Um, and, and so then the next round, uh, assuming that Oregon survives that one against the, the LA team, uh, it's either Wazoo uh, or, you know, it, the, if the winner of Utah versus Cal somehow beats Wazoo, then Oregon would face that team. Um, you know, in, in their one regular season game against Wazoo, uh, you know, Oregon obviously just absolutely hammered them. I sort of think that was a, a bit of a one-off because, I mean, my stars, Wazoo's shooting was just yeah. so terrible in that game. And, you know, they finished up number three uh, in the conference, you know, in a tough conference, you know, for a reason. You know, I, I, I think that'll actually be a game, and I think that Wazoo will probably score more than 30 points. Um, probably. <laughs> uh, but still, I think that Oregon is a better team than Wazoo, don't you? Yeah, I do. I it's hard to tell from one game, especially that game, which I happen to cover for the site. Literally, the the phrase WSU miss two or miss three is, you know, in my notes fifty times during the course of that game. It it was really it almost got to be funny towards the end. It's like every, everybody in the building knew they were gonna miss that shot. And so I personally uh, being, you know, a a little bit uh, concerned about these things, I'd almost like to not have Oregon play Washington state again, because they're going to remember that game. And I don't, Mm. I don't think it was representative of what the Cougar team is or what they believe they are. And that kind of thing always concerns me when somebody comes back from that kind of a hammering that they're going to be super focused to try to win that game. But I, I think Oregon was superior generally and is and is and should be superior to Washington State generally. So I still think they can win it. It's just the karma part of it that I'd like to try to yeah. avoid. Well, Badwater pointed this out in his article. I understand what you're saying. The team that I worry about a little bit more, um, as Badwater pointed out in his article, is that maybe Utah goes on a run mm-hmm. because they sort of they finished. They didn't start the season real strong, but they they really they finished up their uh, regular season on a high note. Um, they played Oregon very close. Um, I, I don't really think they're going to have any problem dispatching Cal. Cal's one of 
the worst teams um, in the in the power leagues. Um, I think the Utah Wazoo game, which you know, I think that game will be worth watching. Um, I think that will actually be a pretty interesting game, and I I actually rate Utah as having a pretty good chance of of coming out of that. And I actually worry about Utah a little more than Wazoo. You know, setting aside the like the karma factor, as you point out, I just feel like Utah was playing stronger ball. You know, well, you, you don't want to run into a team in the tournament, especially early in the tournament, that's gotten on a roll that they've continued into the tournament. And that happens all over the place. Yeah. Hot goaltenders, hot teams. Yeah, I know. I've been all watching Dana sudden, Altman on the men's side for a while now. <laughs> right. Yeah, and all of a sudden that you go from in, we were, there's a lot of discussion of this for the men's basketball team early in the season. It's like, boy, these guys look terrible, but we're pretty confident that Dana's going to whip them into shape by the time the Pac-12 season comes around. And that happened to some degree. They're certainly a better team now than they were uh, in December, for example. But... Um, yeah, you you want to try to not come up against either the best team in the conference, which Oregon would avoid until they get into the championship game, assuming Stanford uh, rolls the, t- the top part of the bracket, uh, or a team that just suddenly gets hot. It's like, like we were talking about with the Oregon baseball team. What happened there in that fourth game down in San Diego that suddenly turned everything around for them at the plate? The same thing can happen in basketball where somebody clicks, you know, one of your players clicks, and all of a sudden you've got a way to win a game that otherwise nobody thinks you can win. Well, speaking of which, let's talk about the men's side. Um, men are uh, staggered a, a week behind the women, so they still have a, another regular season week to play, um, specifically against the uh, the Washington schools, Washington and Wazoo, uh, in the state of Washington. Uh, Oregon has historically owned um, uh, Seattle uh, uh, in basketball, both men and the women, you see any difficulty for the men up against uh, uh, Washington this week? It's not very likely. They, you know, they beat the Huskies um, substantially, twenty-eight points uh, earlier yeah. in the year. Um, they had a closer game in Eugene against Washington State, but uh, you know that was a makeup game, I believe, mm-hmm. and it was played on a Monday. So, not, I mean say what you will. Um, that's the third game in, uh, yeah, they had played Stanford and then Cal. Right. Uh, so the, so, you know, you can, you can kind of give them a little bit of slack on that one, uh, for, for it having been as close as it was at home, but I don't, I, I just don't see either of those teams as, as being real threats. Now the question for the men's team is what are they playing for? Uh, you know, obviously you want to play to win every game. Every athlete knows this. The question is, what what can they do? Is there anything they can do to be able to get into the NCAA tournament? And as I understand it, they're still in the first four out, which means they're only a short distance away from the last four in. So you'd rather be in than out. But they still, I believe, have an opportunity through the, the Pac-12 tournament to, again, show their quality and perhaps forge for themselves a spot in that tournament. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, there is still a chance. Um, it's going to require, you know, a, well, obviously, well, here's what I think. If you just look at the wins uh, that Oregon's men's basketball has, they're wins stack up with anybody in the country like if if resumes were only your wins Oregon's got as many uh or more than most of the top 10 uh you know Mm -hmm. you know that they've you know went out and bagged some pretty good teams it's just what's really killing them is that the you know these humiliating losses to bad teams you know like like the game right before that Wazoo makeup game that we were talking about was that, you know, they just got throttled by a terrible Cal team. Um, You know, they, they lost, they got swept by Arizona state, which is not a great team. Um, You know, and then they come back and you know, they, they play Arizona super close and they play USC, you know, super cool. Like those two games are decided by a combined four points, right? They beat Mm -hmm. UCLA, you know, twice they beat, you know, USC earlier in the year. Um, You know, I I really like this is going to sound maybe a little strange, but like 
I kind of want Oregon to play in the Pac-12 tournament like nothing but good teams because I feel like Dana Altman's <laughs> going to get them up for them, and and I feel like you know the way that Oregon's going to get in is by you know, like, look at how many great teams, you know, we took out and like, and if they, you know, they don't win the tournament and therefore guarantee themselves a bid, uh, you know, if, if they go out at the hand, you know, if they lose to Arizona by a couple of points, like I can live with that as long as they don't go out in the first round losing to Oregon state, you know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. That, that's the, that's the challenge for them is to, to make a splash and have at least one good signature win against one of these great Pac-12 teams. But, you know, the, the kind of the problem with the, the Pac-12 on the men's side, um, it, it's sort of true on the women's side, too. But I mean, it's even more true, in my opinion, on the men's side is that the bad teams in the Pac-12 are appallingly bad. Um, and, you know, Oregon just absolutely cannot um, survive, you know, a, a loss to an appallingly bad team. Like, that's it. You know, we're all done. You know, um, you know, whereas I think, you know, they beat it, you know, if they beat Washington, Washington state and the regular season strong, um, uh, you know, get a, a win or two against, uh, you know, a high quality team and then lose against a high quality team, uh, to, you know, I kind of like their odds to make the tournament, frankly, you know, it, it, it would take, you know, some folks who are also on the bubble to slip up, you know, like Louisville, Virginia, but those are always possible in the ACC tournament, right? Like, sure. You know, that, that's a, you know, it's a killer conference over there. Um, you know, I, I think things are lining up for Oregon to make a last four as long as they don't take an embarrassing loss. And it's just like looking at their season. I don't know if avoiding a terrible, you know, embarrassing loss is really a reasonable thing to expect. <laughs> <laughs> well, at some point you have to use some criteria and you yeah. get down, you know, you can't just use great wins and, and or terrible losses. At yeah. some point you've got to, you know, you get down to uh, rolling dice or something to figure out which of these teams is better than another. But hope, you know, or you're right, Oregon has played up to the level of its competition or down. And there are teams that do that and they don't do it every time. But they've shown, you know, even even the loss to USC the other night and the loss to Arizona were very close games, both of which Oregon could have won. Oh, like if Will Richardson made a shot, you know, for any example. And, and that's, you know, one of the things I, I pointed out in the article. It's like when you lose a game by a point, there's like a billion things that could have happened that, yeah. that you won the game. So, you know, I don't want to put it all on Will's shoulders. But, that, but, but that I mean, of was, all the things yeah, that right. could remedy themselves naturally simply by right. regression to the mean will richardson scoring a positive number of points seems like the most likely of them yeah that's that that was if you told me before the game that was going to happen i would have you know there's no way that's i would have yeah oregon's going to lose by 10 that, you know right? yeah or or that that will was not going to score except from the foul line i mean come on yeah you know the guy's a shooter he, he is he's streaky but he is a shooter and so i was just that was a very unfortunate loss, but uh, well, you know, Oregon showed a lot of resilience, and that's the thing. If they come into this tournament and they can find their shooting touch, um, I think they're going to be a dangerous team. They're, they're, one of the big problems is they've had a lot of these score lines where in the first half or the first, uh, you know, 20, uh, fifteen minutes, they're one for thirteen from three point. Yeah. Uh, from beyond the three point arc and, or, you know, or oh for 12 or something. And it's, at some point you're kind of going, boy, these guys, when these guys start hitting shots, it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah. The, the three point shooting in particular in the last, you know, handful of games has just been, you know, it's been atrocious, but that's another thing <laughs> where it's like simple. We know these guys can hit threes, you know, simple regression to the mean, like, if they start hitting 20% of their threes, you know, right. a, a yeah. bunch of games flip, you know? Yeah, sure. That's, that's four or five shots at three points apiece yeah. is a significant number of points. Uh, so next game up is uh, against Washington. It's actually going to be on at basically the same time as the women um, uh, with their quarterfinals game. So apparently the women will be on uh, Pac-12 National and the men against Washington will be on the regional channel, uh, Pac-12 Oregon. Or if you live in Washington, it'll be on Pac-12 Washington. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Wazoo game to finish the regular season will be on CBS on Saturday. Uh, all right, let's take a break and then we'll uh, get to the mailbag. All right, let's dive into the mailbag. You excited? Oh, definitely. Because I know that ATQ readers 
are the most intelligent sports fans in America, and they ask the best uh, questions. That's definitely true, and there are definitely no like crazy joke questions um, <laughs> uh, or ridiculous like running inside jokes. Um, uh, boy, no, why I'm lying. There are a bunch of crazy, ridiculous questions. Uh, I, there's a reference to power lines. I don't understand that. Um, but there's a whole chain of gifts uh let's see the uh first serious question is is what can i say about uh um kenny dillingham's offense i i don't know yet that's what i'm starting film study on this week i uh, acquired the memphis film and uh, the florida state film um i'm probably not going to look at auburn too much as my understanding is that gus malzahn was calling the plays there uh i really don't know the thing that i'm looking forward to most from what i know of mike norvell's offense because that's sort of the the tree he comes off of is that um it's a really tight end um that they that they aggressively use tight ends um in uh the passing system and that that was um of all the bright spots um that oregon's 2021 team had which they had several in my opinion um the one that surprised me the most um was that the true freshmen um um, ferguson and matavow the tight ends were playing at a high level as true freshmen, um, which you do not see that from, you know, guys who play, you know, they play on the line of scrimmage. They're not linemen, but like usually it takes a year or so um, in the weight room to get up to college, you know, play, but they were throwing blocks, you know, like monsters. They were not used much in the receiving game in 2021. So sort of yet to see um, what their hands are like, but that's the thing that sort of has me excited the most is to to see how those guys do from what I know so far of Dillingham's offense. And that's one of the things I think longtime Duck fans would welcome because Oregon, you know, historically in the Bellotti years and, and even to some degree in the chip years, use their tight ends offensively. I mean, they, they purposefully design plays to get the tight end open and then give them the ball and let them rumble down the field. And it was it, in many games very successful. And so hopefully that will be a part of the new Oregon offense. Uh, let's see. You got a question from, uh, should have been a duck about, uh, uh, what my favorite shark species is. Uh, I, I will say the bonnet head shark, uh, because it, it attacks its prey with great fury. Uh, let's see. Uh, how did the offensive and defensive line, uh, cordial duck asked a great question. How do Oregon's offensive and defensive line stack up against the conference right now? Um, I'm going to, uh, take a rain check on this question. I, I haven't really, um, gotten into my previews of, uh, all the other PAC 12 teams. Um, I, uh, will have a better idea then uh, off the top of my head, I think fairly well. I mean, um, with the exception of Utah, they didn't play anybody, uh, during the regular season or in including Ohio state, uh, in which I thought that the, you know, Oregon's lines were at a disadvantage. Um, and, uh, I see no reason why they ought to change. Now I, um, actually to jump down to a lower question, somebody asked, uh, um, let's see if I can find it. Uh, Double Duck asked um, uh, specific things that I'm going to be watching for specific units. Um, uh, uh, and yet another Duck fan asked several questions, one of which was uh, if you had one position on the side of the ball that you were allowed to watch in spring uh, practice uh, to evaluate, you know, what would it be? The answer to that question is the defensive line. Um, not really because I have questions about whether those dudes are dudes who can get it done because, you know, we're most we're talking about returning players, and I think Oregon's defensive tackles, or they were as they were classified last year's defensive tackles, uh, Doralis and Amavai and Ware Hudson and Christian Williams. Like, I think those guys are really great. Um, like, I've got no uh, you know questions there. I think some of the you know incoming guys are really great. I think that Sir Mel's um, will be really interesting if he can play you know right away as a true freshman. I'm I'm also really interested. But but the but the thing that I'm mostly um, curious about is. Uh, when Tim DeRuder came in last year, that's a guy who wants to run a three down front. In fact, a front that's extremely similar to the tight front slash mint front thing. It's sort of, um, it, it's, it, it was interesting doing watching his career because it goes back like 25 years where he starts out as a three down guy who's a five Oh five, meaning, um, that the two defensive ends are directly over the, uh, the tackles. That's what five technique means. Um, but then at some point, um, in the last decade, when he was coaching at Fresno state, he moved him in to be in a tight front type configuration where it's four I mean shaded inside where their job is to close the B gaps. And, um, and so it's sort of like, there's a, 
there, in that sense, there's a lot of continuity between what Tim DeRuiter wanted to do and what he was definitely doing at Cal before he came to Oregon. Um, and then, you know, was doing at Oregon and then this new defense that Dan Lanning is going to bring in, you know, but the, but the thing was, and I, I predicted this before the 2021 season and it came true was that Oregon didn't exactly have the body types to, to totally fill out a three down lineman, you know, rotation, and, 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 you know, a full rotation of three down linemen. They had enough dudes to put three out, but you got to have more than just three, um, you know, Cal found that out in 2020. Um, and, and so like, if they didn't have enough dudes, my prediction was, I think they're probably going to do a lot of two and four down fronts instead of the three down front that he really wants to do. And that was exactly what happened. And if you want to go back and watch the Cal film, it's also what they were doing at Cal once they lost their nose guard, uh, Chris Palmer at the end of the 2018 season is that they were like, well, shoot, we don't have enough dudes to play a three down front. We'll play some of our downs, two down and some of our downs, three down. And then you look at the uh, Tony Tuyati, who was the defensive line coach in 2018 for Cal. And then he's been at Nebraska the last three years. They're doing the same thing there. They're alternating between two and three down fronts. Um, and the thing about the mint front, the Dan Lanning and Tosh LePoy when he was uh, at Alabama, um, what they really want to do is not, we don't ever want to do the two down thing. We're always going to be three down. Um, and, and at this point it sort of requires more explanation than I can do in, on a podcast. You read my articles. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but that like, I've, I, I feel like Lanning is going to want to do three down all the time. Um, and the virtue of that sort of being in, in brief terms that you can get away with only doing three and you can drop eight. Um, if you're doing that, there's no way you're going to rush two and drop nine. Like there's no such thing as a successful system that does that. Uh, so being able to always do three down, I think is going to be really valuable. I think, but I'm not sure that Oregon will have the personnel to always do three down. I think one of the reasons that they got to Yachty is that if they have to blink on that question, you have a guy who's experienced at running a front that alternates between two and three down. Um, but I, I, w I mean, that's a big schematic and strategic question that I would like to be able to observe personally, you know, whether or not it's going to be an always three down or whether it's going to be a two an alternate uh, alternating system. Um, I don't know. It, it is by far the most interesting question. This team doesn't have a lot of questions really. Let, let me get your opinion on this one slurms. Uh, it seems to me that other than that sort of like schematic question, and then the obvious question, which is the quarterback, um, it seems to me like this team doesn't have any, you know, significant questions to me. D does it to you? Well, they've got, they've lost some people. There's been some turnover due to the coaching situation. Uh, some people left, some other people showed up and, and more may show up as we go forward. Um, <clears throat> they seem to have recruited well in positions of need. They have a lot of high quality players coming back uh, from previous year. So, I don't know other than, you know, the sort of general broad questions that <clears throat> all fans have about the team, the, the new coaching staff, about their ability to, um, as you know, to adapt to what the personnel are that they have available, um, to coach players up into positions that they need to have them in. Those are the sort of overarching questions, I think, that we're going to find out. You can have great players, as, as we've noted before. Um, you know, you want to turn your four-star into a five-star, your three-star into a four-star. And having a coaching staff that can get that accomplished is very important uh, for Oregon particularly, although in the past that was the hallmark of the program was we took players that nobody else wanted or somebody that was a two-star and turned them into fantastic college football players. Um, that, that could win in the Pac-10 in the, in the older days and, or the Pac-12. So that's the, the, my questions aren't personnel specific or even position specific. It's how the coaching staff is going to do as far as coaching guys up and adaptability to take what the opponent is giving you or to react to injury problems that they would, as obviously last season, they had a ton of injuries very difficult to react to. At some point, you just run out of bodies, period. Yeah, I was very but, clear. But if it's only one or two injuries, can you change configuration or can you coach somebody up to 
fill in for that spot and the team doesn't miss a beat going forward. Uh, let's see. Next question, uh, which is uh, favorite and least favorite hire of the Dan Laning era. Well, assuming that I, I can't. Uh, oh, from Mariota's mustache, our, our glorious leader emeritus. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, well, assuming I can't say Dan Laning because uh, he didn't hire himself. Um, uh, I'll actually I'll say Matt Powledge uh, so far of the tape that I've reviewed. Um, he does. I think he does the most to challenge Dan Lanning in terms of how uh, you might want to use a particular player uh, in the defense. Um, and I, I feel like um, that's good to have for a new head coach, like uh, sort of, you know, like we could do things differently. Like we don't have to, you know, just do automatically what you did at Georgia um, because at, at both, you know, Georgia and Alabama, they're, you know, they're, they're playing a nickel defense, but they're almost always dropping the nickel out. And the thing that was interesting about Powell, uh, his safety, Jalen Petrie at Baylor, who won the, you know, big 12 defensive player of the year um, was uh, used a lot more aggressively in the box. Not always, but like, um, and, and that's potentially a big change and having like another voice in the room uh, on that question is um, particularly interesting. And he's the co DC. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, we could potentially see, you know, uh, some, some sort of, you know, uh, a change there or sort of a, uh, an alternate philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. I'm going to skip the linebackers question. Oh, oh, my favorite coach. Uh, sorry. Um, or my least favorite coach. Um, I guess I'm going to go with Adrian Clem on that question. Like, I understand he's a hell of a recruiter. All these guys are hell of a recruiters. Um, I, just his offensive lines did not perform well. Um, and I think that Oregon fans are going to, you know, like Oregon fans have been spoiled rotten because they went, you know, basically went from, from Steve Greatwood to Alex Mirabal, both of whom I think are some of the absolute best offensive line coaches in the country. Um, and I don't think I would classify uh, Adrian Clem in that way. Um, so I don't know. On the other hand, I'm not sure it's really going to affect anything this first year. So because Oregon's returning, you know, very, the entirety of a very experienced line. So, you know, you know, maybe not right away, but like down the line, I, I think, you know, we'll find out whether or not Adrian Clems learned how to coach. Hmm. Let's see. Let's skip that linebacker question. Let's see. Uh, uh, yeah, we sort of dealt with that already. The offensive line uh, guess on the coming season wins and losses. I'm going to put off that question until I, know more about the rest of the pack 12 uh was dire down obviously like what kind of i mean <laughs> give me a break Jeez, sweaty towel was was dire down was a ridiculous thing to ask uh let's see badwater asked uh whether it's an advantage or disadvantage that oregon does not play usc in the 2022 regular season um Oh, well, should have been a Ducks already given my answer, so I'll just repeat it. Yeah, it, 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 it makes both Oregon and USC look like better teams if they both make it to the Pac-12 championship game. It makes it must-watch football and uh, potentially makes it, a, you know, a, a high-quality win um, for, for whoever comes out of it. Uh, you know, making your conference championship game a play-in to the playoffs uh, helps everybody. And even if USC winds up winning that game, which, you know, knock on wood, but like, it'd be nice to get some money um, from the, the <laughs> playoff payoff. Um, let's see. I don't know anything about Peyton Pritchard. Uh, let's see. Oh, we got an interesting question from Twitter. This will be the last question we cover. Um, uh, did I know any discrepancy in the play calling the last two years with the high pressure third down situations in the normal play calling that Moorhead usually used, specifically in spots where Mario may have parenthetically allegedly vetoed a play call from Joe? Um, this is I like the way that this question is phrased. I think it is a fair question. It could be evaluated scientifically because we have so much tape on Joe Moorhead at both offensive coordinator spots where he was at Akron and at UConn, um, the year where they went to a BCS bowl and um, in Penn state and Oregon. Uh, and he's been a head coach at uh, Fordham and uh, Mississippi state where obviously no one has the power to overrule him. Right. So like if Joe Moorhead had a regular playbook the joe moorhead playbook that he was calling plays out over the last 15 years i could just say oh this is how he does it on third down when he doesn't have a boss and this is how he does it on third down when he does have a boss and did you know mario cristobal as his boss you know make him do things differently it's a 
well-phrased question in that way. Unfortunately, there is no such thing as the Joe Moorhead playbook. Um, <laughs> that was the thing that really, you know, jumped out at me and kind of knocked my socks off when I wrote that article back in January of 2020, when I went through his previous film was that if you, if you didn't know that all those teams that I just mentioned had the same play caller, you would not suspect it at all. Like he completely rewrote the playbook. I mean, completely like Yukon's using a fullback man. Like, I mean, like I saw everything from like pro sets, uh, definitely the rise of the RPO. All of that doesn't happen until late in his career. In case anybody's like Joe Moorhead has always been running the RPO. Nope. Like that's a relatively late thing in his, uh, his career. Um, it's, uh, you know, he's done spread, spread stuff extensively. The, it's just, there's, I still can't conduct that experiment because I don't know if what he was doing at Oregon is, is because that's exactly what he wanted to do or if he was being pressured from the top. I, I simply can't answer that question simply from looking at the film. I wish I could, but I can't. Um, the, I guess I would say, well, I would say a couple of things. Uh, number one, you know, one of the fan theories that I think is very wrong, um, about, you know, Oregon's uh, putative offensive struggles in 2021 is that they were, you know, constantly running the ball into the linemen's butts and, oh, that must've been Mario Cristobal forcing them to do that. None of that is true. Like that, that is a very ridiculous, uh, theory, um, in that number one, their running was insanely effective. They went on a four game stretch and stretch in which they were 75% effective, uh, running the ball, which is like in a bonkers number, like, like playoff caliber is 60%, 75% is unheard of to do it for four games and to finish at like 69% rushing efficiency is, I mean, it is flipping insane. Oregon was incredibly effective at the running the ball. If anything, they should have been running the ball more often. And that if anything, I had play calling, you know, criticism at all for this team. It's they were throwing the ball, you know, when they shouldn't have. And fans, you know, never like hearing that because fans think that the ball should always be thrown, think this should be like basketball or something. Uh, like, um, you know, so, you know, the, the, the idea that like, oh, Mario Cristobal, you know, because that, that's the one where fans, you know, sort of like connect the dots. Like, oh, he's a meathead offensive and so he wants to run the ball all the time and so therefore that must have been the thing and it's like that doesn't like like that double doesn't make any sense um the other thing that i will note about joe moorhead that sort of is a through line throughout his career is that he's he attacks angles and grass and sort of the opposite of that basic philosophy is uh is the idea of uh, personnel matchups like winning personnel matchups so for example if you watch like pete carroll's usc teams those teams knew they had a talent advantage on everybody that they played and they played like it. They were just like our wide receiver is, you know, go ahead. It's going to be man coverage, but throw the dude, the ball down the sideline anyway, because our dude is just going to run past the cornerback because he's that much faster than he is. Um, and so, and Joe Moore had sort of the opposite is like, let me engineer this dude to be open. Um, and, uh, you know, let's let's use this RPO stuff, for example, to make the defense always wrong so that, you know, they don't have enough dudes to cover whoever the ball is going to wind up in the hands of. And so if you had a theory that Mario Cristobal was overriding, you know, Joe Moorhead in a particular instance, you might think that like he would insist on the no, we've just got better athletes than they do. Let's run plays that take advantage of that, Joe, because um, I'm a great recruiter and I believe in the, the talent that I've recruited and I don't want to do your silly engineering open grass stuff. That's not what I see on film. It just isn't um, it, uh, like I, I see. First of all, on third downs, I don't see a different type of play calling where it's attempting to win personnel matchups. I see this same general philosophy of plays being called where it's going against open grass. I see guys getting open. Like, I, I think the playbook was well designed. What I don't see consistently, especially on third down, is the quarterback uh, doing his job. Um, I see accuracy problems where that's the throw, but he just doesn't hit it. And I see decision-making problems where it's, you know, that's not the throw you need to, you know, hit the guy, the second progression or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't want to pile on the guy. I, 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 I don't think it's, it profits anybody, but like this, this offense, when it had problems, it was always just Anthony Brown wasn't doing his job. And, and you know, it's just the, the, 
you know, Mario Cristobal, Joe Moorhead, and Anthony Brown are no longer with the Oregon team. So figuring out where exactly to apportion the blame between the three of them is kind of an academic question. I guess we're here trying to answer an academic question. It's just not what I was seeing. I, I was just not seeing Joe Moorhead be a screw up. I was just not seeing any real evidence that Mario was, uh, Cristobal was trying to interfere with it. What I was seeing real evidence of was that's the throw, make the throw, Anthony. Oh, you didn't make the throw. Well, I guess they have to punt. And it just comes down to that. And I don't know. That, that's the end of my question. Storms, you got any input on that one? Uh, you know, not particularly. <laughs> it, it, it's just, a you know, it's unfortunate. And, and frankly, and the other thing about Anthony Brown is that we're never going to know because that guy's film at Boston College was doing exactly what I was crying out for all year long, which was push the ball downfield. And... And then he didn't have it for the entire year until the second half of the Elmo Bowl, where all of a sudden he gets it back. And it's like, it's the most frustrating thing in the world for a film reviewer because our mantra is, you know, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And all of his past behavior would have predicted different stuff. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I don't know what it's about. Uh, my best theory is that both. Uh, is that while Joe Moorhead is a good play caller and that Mario Cristobal is a good CEO, that Joe Moorhead is not a good quarterbacks coach. I think there's actually a lot of evidence if you go through his career um, and look at some of his other stops on that question. Um, and that Mario Cristobal's blind spot as a CEO is recognizing when he doesn't have a quarterbacks coach, because I also think that's true of Marcus Arroyo. I didn't really think that the play calling for Marcus Arroyo was terrible. I did think that the quarterback performance was super inconsistent and that does come down to the quarterback coach. Um, and I think that Mario Cristobal never really recognized that. And I think you could also see when you look at Miami, what's one of the first moves that he makes, or actually, I guess one of the last moves that he makes is that he hires a separate quarterbacks coach who's separate from his offensive play caller. Um, and I sort of think he recognized that he was getting, you know, not good quarterback coaching and wanted to isolate that question. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Oregon is not going to do it that way. Oregon is, you know, Kenny Dillingham is going to be both the OC and the quarterbacks coach. I think his performance, like there's one thing that I can say before I really dive into the film for Dillingham is that I, I think he's a pretty good quarterbacks coach. I mean, look at that, you know, the Florida state, that crazy game against Notre Dame or, or, or that, you know, he had to deal with a two quarterback situation and, and, you know, neither one of those guys were really playing terribly. Like, and that's a, you know, very awkward thing. So like, oh man, you know, who knows what the quarterback, you know, who knows who's going to win the competition, who knows if they're going to play well, who knows if the quarterback, you know, coaching is going to be well, I can confidently say like, that is the question and really the only question. Yeah, and that's been the knock on the team for the last couple of years is they've had a ton of seemingly very high-level quarterback recruits come through the program without very much to show for it. And they've had to rely on these transfers to come in and take over the reins of the program instead of having developed somebody organically from inside the program. <clears throat> so hopefully that will be the one of the major changes with the new coaching staff is that they will be able to develop quarterbacks and other players uh, to step up to these roles as the roles become available. Well, they've got three, uh, four stars in, in Bo Nix, uh, Ty Thompson and Robbie, uh, or excuse me, um, uh, Jay Butterfield to, to pick from. It should be an interesting spring game to watch, you know, where they're at. Um, that's coming up. It's right around the corner. Um, so we'll keep our eye on that quarterback competition. Cause like I said, it's, it's the major question, kind of the only one. All right. I think we're uh, going to wrap up for the podcast. This is a good one. Uh, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. All right. Take care. You too.